The so-called pharma bro has been sentenced to seven years in prison. Martin Shkreli convicted of defrauding investors. Corporate bigwigs inflated Enron's earnings by several hundred million dollars. A New York Times investigation claims the president was involved in multiple instances of tax fraud. Bank executives wrecked the global economy. Only one Wall Street banker was jailed. White-collar criminals differ from other types of criminals in one important way. They're much worse. From the offices of Civic Ventures in downtown Seattle, this is Pitchfork Economics with Nick Hanauer, where we explore everything you wished you'd learn in Econ 101. Hey, it's Zach, I'm the president of Civic Ventures, and I have the pleasure today of talking to Michael Hobbs. Michael is one of my favorite journalists. He does some of the most incredible writing and thinking about current American Life, and the podcast he hosts digs into some of the most interesting stories. Today, Michael and I are going to talk about The Golden Age of White Collar Crime, his most recent piece in HuffPo. Uh, this is about elite lawbreaking and how out of control it is. And the subhead here is, this is the grotesque story of an existential threat to American society. So Michael and I are going to discuss his piece and really, the general gist of it is the rich are enjoying a golden age of impunity that's unprecedented in modern history. He uses a term called elite deviance. And elite deviance is all the legal and illegal social harms that are caused by the wealthy. So for example, one year of white collar crime is equal to two decades of street crime. That's one of the statistics he points out, which is to say when you commit a white-collar crime, you are committing millions and millions and millions of dollars of social harm. And then where this really is prominent is in tax evasion, which has gotten a lot of play, and Michael talks a lot about that both in the piece and when we talk today. And tax evasion siphons 10,000 times more money out of the economy every year than bank robberies do. So these are the kind of elite deviances that Michael talks about in his piece, The Golden Age of White Collar Crime. I hope you enjoy the pod. Michael, super excited to have you Zach, here. Zach, excited yeah. to be here. Thank you so much for coming. Could you tell people about yourself? I'm from Seattle, so that's why I'm able to be here today. I am a reporter for The Huffington Post, and I'm the co-host of a podcast called You're Wrong About. You know, that's one of our favorite podcasts here in the office. Thank so, you. Yeah, it's really awesome to have you here. And you wrote, I mean, the really the reason we are having you in, in addition to you being a fellow Seattleite and uh, incredible podcast host, you wrote a piece for the uh, HuffPo, and it, we found it to be incredibly insightful and provocative. Will you talk a little bit about the piece and your approach, and then we, let's just get into digging around on it. So- one of the most interesting things doing a piece like this was we basically set out to find out why aren't rich people going to jail anymore? Why does this feel like there's this avalanche of what's known as elite deviance in the academic literature, and yet elites aren't going to jail the way that they used to be? Hmm. And when I was talking about this with my editor, he said, you know, I, I really want to get the sense of, you know, the cat and mouse game, this kind of catch me if you can, chasing criminals across the world, moving money around. 
And then the minute I started looking into this, the first thing that I found was that there there kind of isn't a cat and mouse game. Hmm. And what it really requires to bust rich people, the most damaging form of crime we have in this country, is just the blunt application of resources. Hmm. And it's just something we don't dedicate resources to anymore. Hmm. It's something that we know where to look for it. We know exactly the forms that it's taking. We know how to get money back from the Bahamas. But it just takes months of work, and yeah. we're not willing to invest in it anymore. Yeah. So that's a boring answer, but it's the true one. Huh. What do you think? First of all, can you track when you think this new age, I mean, you call it the kind of the golden age of impunity, <laughs> um, where wealth, the very wealthy, very powerful are able to commit really... Um, you point out a lot of financial crimes, but mm -hmm. we can also look at other types of crimes that they're committing. I mean, obviously, Epstein is in the news, and he's committing these crimes mm -hmm. over a long period of time without real consequence yeah. until very recently. And um, there is this kind of age of impunity. What do you? When do you track it back to? If you had a like backcast? Well, there's a couple layers to this. So the the impetus, the most obvious finding that we began the story with was this idea that there are now fewer white-collar prosecutions than when than at any time since we started tracking them. Huh. Since researchers started looking into this in the 1990s, we now audit only about 3% of millionaires. How about that? We have, it's in the triple digits somewhere, the number of white-collar prosecutions. And so this is something that, you know, the, the easiest way to illustrate this is that for the savings and loan scandal in 1989, 700 people were convicted. Wow. For Enron in 2001, about 40 people were convicted. And then for the financial crisis in 2008, one person was convicted. And so there's a very clear sort of line downward of just how much interest we have in this anymore. But what's really interesting is that this is, it's really a nesting doll type of catastrophe. Mm -hmm. So the first layer of it is just, we're doing fewer white collar prosecutions. But the second layer of it is really that white collar is not a very accurate term. Hmm. Because when you start looking into this, what you find is that most of the white collar prosecutions, I'm making air quotes, yeah. are actually low level stuff. It's like identity theft. I read hmm. somewhere that four out of five people convicted of embezzlement made less than $10,000 a year before they were convicted. Wow. You know, it's, it's middle managers using the company credit card to buy themselves an iPhone. It's not you know, high level wow. Enron banker securities fraud stuff. And you point out in the piece that this is partially due to if the in, the statistics around white collar crime yeah. are inflated. So if if you're reading the statistics, you might assume, oh, we're actually prosecuting quite a lot of white collar mm. crime. But it turns out what we're prosecuting are these relatively minor yeah. players for these kind of minor crimes. And meanwhile, the uber wealthy committing really egregious tax evasion yeah. or other types of uh, fraud or abuse are getting away with it. Yeah, I mean, the the most damaging forms of crime are those committed by the powerful. I mean, if you look at something like the Flint water crisis, that's 100% yeah. done by elites. You look at something like the opioid crisis. You look at something like Enron jacking up the prices of energy by faking all these blackouts in California and the price of energy spiked by, I believe, eight times in California. I mean, these are huge effects on people's lives. And yet our entire system of criminal justice is really meant to go after bad apples. That's, you know, it's bad people working with, it's individuals working with no institutional support. But then the way that one researcher put it to me was we can't go after bad orchards when there's entire organizations hmm. that are acting terribly like, you know, the Catholic Church 
or like Goldman Sachs or one of these other big financial firms in the financial crisis, it's really impossible for the criminal justice system to pluck any single person out of that hmm. and say you were doing wrong because the responsibility is so diffuse across the organization hmm. that it is almost seen as unfair to say, well, this one person was at the heart of it because you can't really prove it. So it's difficult to track to when, but we know that over time, and I thought that was an incredible outline, what you're going from hundreds of prosecutions to dozens of prosecutions to one prosecution. <laughs> and really, um, so, so we know that it's declined. And you interrelated in the piece with the fact that we have really deprioritized this as a government, like our yeah. federal government in particular, although I assume that this is also trackable at the state level, it takes really time and resources. It's not yeah. a, it's not a game of Clue or Catch Me If I Can. It's actually just really like hard drudgery work that takes real yeah. human time and capital and purpose and attention by these agencies, and that's just been wiped out. Yeah, I mean, what the pattern that has repeated itself over and over again since the 1980s is you have these regulation agencies that are supposed to be looking into, you know, polluting in the rivers or toys that are going to kill us or these kinds of background risks to the population. And what happens is these agencies, when Republicans are in government, they cut their budgets. And then when Democrats are in government, they increase the amount they want those organizations to do. So over time, you have fewer and fewer resources and more and more obligations. Hmm. And so what this does is it adds up to this thing where every time a scandal reveals how weak these organizations are, Congress steps in and makes it worse. Wow. So, you know, after... Enron, for example, we passed Sarbanes-Oxley that puts all of these extra obligations on the SEC, all this. They have to review tons more companies, trillions more in assets, and they get, I believe it was like 200 more inspectors. Jeez. So it's like they're asked to do twice as much and 10% more staff. And then by the time we get to the financial crisis, again, Congress says, well, you were asleep at the wheel. Why weren't you doing this? And then they come in, they pass Dodd-Frank, which again gives the agency way more to do. And then they again give them like 5% more staff. And so yeah. we've just set ourselves up for the same thing to happen again, because we're only going back and correcting the mistakes of 20 years ago, rather than bringing these agencies up to where they need to be now. One of the my favorite uh, moments in the piece is you actually attend this conference. Oh, yeah. Offshore Alert. Yeah. <laughs> Which yeah. I love the name of the conference. It's a little like fraud guarantee. It's, yeah. a, it's, a, it's a really clever. I, could you talk about going to this conference? Because I, I assume in the piece you had so much to cover. I, I wanted to even hear more than what you ended up uh, talking about. Oh, my about God. I could have written like five essays on that conference. <laughs> Can you give people context for what it is and how you ended up there and then just pull out some stories from this experience? Well, it's basically a conference that happens twice a year that is basically like a cops and robbers conference. It's people who investigate offshore wealth, and it's people who hide wealth offshore. So it's a bunch of tax lawyers for the wealthy, and it's a bunch of IRS and SEC agents and you know Senate staff who are investigating this stuff. And it has this weird, you know, this weird sense, and it has this surreal kind of vibe where you're watching you know, IRS agents, one of the people that I spoke to there, she can't afford to get her business cards printed. The agency won't af won't pay to print her business cards anymore. So she prints her own business cards with like her IRS email at Kinko's. Like she's spending her own money on this. And then you have these extremely wealthy tax lawyers that have like just flown in from the Cayman Islands. Yeah. They're wearing Rolex watches. And you see these two people chatting over guacamole and just kind of like, oh, how's your year been? Like, hey, how are you? And it's 
it's this very strange thing where it's it's like this truce has been declared. Huh. But then what you find when you talk to these people is it's not that these people are really at war with each other the rest of the year and they've called a truce. It's that both sides of this equation know exactly the same thing, mm -hmm. which is that the ways that rich people hide their money offshore and avoid taxes is actually pretty easy to unravel mm -hmm. if you have the time. So one of the guys that I was speaking to there was, I mean, he mentioned, you know, the average millionaire, billionaire, their tax returns are 900 pages long and yeah. they have hundreds of bank accounts and dozens of companies. And so... You know, you, you, you get a subpoena, you find out his Bank of America account has all these sketchy transfers from the Bahamas. Then you contact the bank in the Bahamas, you get a warrant from the Bahamas, you get judges. And, you know, you finally find out what all these transfers into his Bahamas bank account are. And he says, you know, congratulations, that took you six months and cost you $150,000 yeah. to do all of that. Because there's all this procedural stuff. You have to go down there. They won't let you look at the documents from abroad, et cetera, et cetera. And so it really is, you just need the money to do this. Hmm. Like there isn't a lot of intrepid, <laughs> you know, guesswork going on. It's really just money yeah. and we just don't invest in this. And so there isn't really any risk of the cops and the robbers to be hanging out with each other and going to like bowling happy hours because they're not going to accidentally reveal anything about their clients because the cops already know where their clients are hiding money. They know exactly how. Yeah. It's just... We can only do this once or twice a year. And the way that another researcher that I met there put it was, you know, there's this upper tranche of people that have enough money that they can hide their money really well. And they mm -hmm. know that we'll never get to it because by the time you unlock that Bahamas bank account, it's actually getting all these transfers from the Cook Islands. Then you have to go to the Cook Islands. It'll take you 10 years to unravel all this. The only people they can really go after are this middle tranche of people who have enough money to hide it, but not enough money to do it very well. Oh, so okay. it's not the super rich that they're catching it's people that are you know maybe they're doctor or maybe they get a big you know an inheritance of a million or two but we're not talking about the jeff bezos's of the world yeah. that are even sort of possible to go after anymore because it's it's literally just such a labyrinth to wow. find what they're doing wow you know we talk a lot on our podcast and we think a lot about these ideas of i like your podcast yes oh thank you welcome welcome <laughs> welcome to it um about this idea that you know there are some very basic human norms that are at play. The most important one is this idea of reciprocity, and that kind of informs our principles of justice. And this whole system, this breakdown where you have an elite group of people who are perpetually getting away with what is pretty self-evidently harms, yeah. it does seem to like seep into the culture. Part of, I think, our idea behind people being angry enough to grab pitchforks is they're very angry about these circumstances. Yeah. Interestingly enough, you can kind of trace it along the uh, numbers that you put out. Mm. People were certainly angry in the 90s. They got more angry after Enron and the collapse of a lot of the dot-coms who are also similarly shady and very shady accounting schemes. And then we end up to, to the 2008, and some people actually explain some of the great underlying anger that has been out of that because no one paid a price. There was no, yeah. everybody understands that when somebody does a harm, there should be some consequence, uh, but no one really paid a price out of that. As you said, there was only one prosecution, and that was obviously a set of choices that were made. Mm. And interestingly, the, one of the interesting things is, uh, is that this goes back and forth between Republican administrations and Democratic administrations. I agree Certainly, the Democrats want these agencies to do more, but they don't seem willing to give them the kind of resources that are yeah. necessary to do more. Yeah. And, of course, it was Barack Obama who made choices about not prosecuting 
uh, people after the 2008 yeah. collapse. What do you think about that notion of reciprocity and where it sits with our current angst? And it's not just angst here in America. It's angst really across across the Western world. Well, I, I think the two most pernicious myths about elite deviance are first that people aren't mad about it and secondly mm. that people struggle to understand it huh. that you know when you look at things like you know there's these technical terms of like stock buybacks yeah. and these like large-scale embezzlement schemes there's stealing we're talking about lying and stealing and if you explain it to people in those terms it's not hard to understand yeah. right like you can gussy it up as much as you want but it's lying and stealing and yeah. so when you describe to people what's actually going on people are not as dumb as we think they are and People like nobody watches Aaron Brockovich and is like, well, the company didn't do anything wrong. Like people are mad about powerful yeah. people using their privilege to gain even more. Like that's something that hits yeah. us on a gut level. And so I think that's a way those two myths are ways of blaming us somehow yeah. for the reason that these people aren't going to jail. But the fact is the anger is if anything, much greater than it was in 1989. Mm -hmm. And the scale of the wrongdoing is also much greater than it was in 89. But the systems that we have to prosecute these things have just completely broken down. So our anger doesn't get channeled into yeah. anything. We don't get this catharsis of having, you know, 65 bankers from the financial crisis go to jail. That would have felt really good. Yes. Mm -hmm. And we don't have anything that feels good. And so we, we end up channeling that anger into other things, into Occupy Wall Street, into NGOs, into feisty podcasts, mm -hmm. into wherever we can put it. Yeah. But the energy and the anger is still very much there. Yeah, I think so too. We see it all the time. It's one of the things that was really readily identifiable to us when we were thinking through. This was prior to Trump, by the way. We, mm. you know, we um, Nick Hanauer famously um, wrote this essay for Politico that was called "The Pitchforks Are Coming for Us Plutocrats," and it was very much identifying this basic dynamic. Of course, it was because of the concentration of wealth and the hollowing out of the middle class, but it, simultaneously it was violating these basic reciprocity norms that are about justice and what's fair. And when yeah. you combine those two things together, you get a really potent mix of anger. Yeah. Yeah, there's no question. Uh, we talk a lot about laws and we talk a lot about no, the, the idea that laws often are codifying norms, but one of the things that was in place in corporate America for a long time, there were some internal norms that were at play about how people would perform and so for a long time, part of that was your employees. You know, certainly it was owners or the stock, st uh, stakeholders or st stockholders of the company. And, but it had, you also had an obligation to society in some way. And one of the things that we definitely notice, and obviously it's kind of famously done in the, Wall, the movie Wall Street, where greed is good, is the kind of culmination of this idea that you did not have an obligation to society at all in your corporate behavior. And once you decoupled that, it allows for just your... your you're unmoored from any morality. Uh, and that seems to be part of what is going on, not to say that there weren't always bad actors. There were bad actors in the Gilded Age, there were bad actors throughout all of human history, but there was a very brief period in time, in American history anyway, where there was the social contract construction of the corporation that we're gonna give you certain privileges, but that's gonna come with certain responsibilities. Some of those are codified into law, and some of those are just a normative set of standards. And that just got, just totally broken apart. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the most important things to realize about these kinds of crimes is that they're not crimes of passion. They're crimes of calculation. Hmm. And so to me, cultures grow in the incentives that we give them. Hmm. And I think that we think that it's like the culture of corporations changed and then the laws followed. But I actually think that it's the erosion of the law 
change and then the cultures change with it because once there aren't people watching you there's no i mean one of the researchers that i spoke to said there's no such thing as beat cops for white collar crime there's no such thing as undercover stings we don't really have you know hotline numbers that you can call you can't really call 911 and say like you know this product is mislabeled and it might be harming people that doesn't really work so we don't have any of these sort of low level small reliable punishments broken windows stuff we don't have any of that for the corporate sector. And yeah. so the example that I use in the article is self-checkouts, which we all know self-checkouts from grocery stores, that mostly when grocery stores install them, shoplifting doubles. Yeah. And it's not that people become worse human beings. It's that self-checkouts make it really easy to steal and really easy to write it up as a mistake. Like, oh, I didn't know, or I thought that object mm. scanned, or I typed in the code for carrots when it was really apples or whatever, and they're cheaper. It's really easy to get away with that because you know you're never really going to get caught for it. You can always explain it away. And we've duplicated those exact conditions across the corporate sector that we have a profit motive, but we also have a court system that allows rich people to file hundreds of appeals whenever they get convicted of anything. They can appeal and appeal and appeal on these tedious, technical, technocratic grounds. And oftentimes their cases get thrown out. I mean... Jeffrey Skilling, the CEO of Enron, got 10 years cut off of his sentence through these technical appeals that the law to convict him was too vague, blah, blah, blah. And it was. It's a, it, it's not a particularly good law. But of course, most of the laws in America are not that good. Like if, <laughs> yeah. if you challenged, you know, yeah. Grand Theft Auto, you would probably get your I conviction I think you could probably overturned. find something, yeah, something vague there. Yeah. Right? yeah. But it's, so it's, you know, a, a lot of people in the legal community have gotten salty emails from people saying like, well, the tools that rich people are using are really constitutional protections and so we don't want to get rid of constitutional protections but of course in practice the only people that have the means to make these endless constitutional challenges are rich people and so over time you've had you know public corruption law is completely gutted now there's no longer usefully this concept of honest services fraud that companies can lie to you to get your money yeah we we lost insider trading laws through this that those have been weakened i mean If anyone else had the resources to do this, we would also see an erosion of those laws, but we don't have the we don't have the money behind that. And we also don't have judges that are willing to hear out these defendants, right? Of judges that are from the same demographic groups as the defendants. They are mostly white, they're mostly male, they are old, their base salary is two hundred and ten thousand dollars a year. And you know, I talked to prosecutors who used to prosecute gangs and now prosecute white collar criminals, and they said, you know, the kinds of challenges that rich people are bringing against the laws used to convict them or the search warrants or whatever, that like you'd get laughed out of court if you tried to do that as a gang member. They'd be like LOL nice try yeah but then when it comes to ceos it's like oh we, we'd really better hear him out like i you know there might have been a miscarriage of justice here wow. and it's just it's it's really i think disingenuous to not see this as a problem the legal system really can't maintain convictions the one that i think about all the time is that the only person in the catholic church that was higher than an actual abuser who was convicted of the child sex abuse scandal. There's only one person. This is like the sad epilogue to the movie Spotlight. He had his conviction overturned by arguing that by telling the jury about the Catholic Church's history of covering up sex abuse, that biased the jury against him. So he's no longer convicted. It's not clear how he's going to be retried, whether he's going to be retried. One of the witnesses is now recanted. It's very complicated. And so on some level, you can say, like, 
well, it probably did bias the jury against him. And, you know, it, it, it is maybe a little bit unfair to say you work for this organization that, that's bad and you must be bad too. But on the other hand, <laughs> we have an extremely gross crime, a systematic crime that we're essentially incapable of prosecuting, that nobody above an abuser is going to go to jail for this because at every level, you know, if you reconvict him, he's going to find some other reason. He's going to say the jury instructions were wrong. He's going to say the venue was wrong. Mm. You know, these guys can always get these convictions overturned on these challenges that kind of seem reasonable, but overall in the aggregate is like, no, like, yeah. this is bad. Yeah, and particularly, and I think your point about that and the judges is, it is at that level of the kind of structural racism and built-in biases where that judge has sympathy for that defendant but would not have sympathy for a young black man, for example. In and ways that are invisible to them, in ways they them. don't realize. That's right. Yeah. They would never self-identify in this way. Yeah. Of course not. They're just yeah. uh, administering justice. And then yeah. simultaneously, of course, the resources that, that that Catholic official has to be able to go back over and over and over again and chip away at their conviction are just not available to other yeah. people inside the system. Yeah, I thought that was very interesting. I, I also thought the... The other thing that to, that struck me in 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 reading this is how judges think about their role in this legal system, which is they do think that they are protecting con some some constitutional rights here, right? I mean, they they don't see they see themselves as administering justice when they are helping right. people get off. Yeah, I mean, there's I think there's a lot of willful blindness mm -hmm. on the part of the legal community. Basically looking at each case individually without looking at them in the aggregate. Because if you look at each, because if you look at any case individually, you probably will find reasons that, you know, the jury was biased against this defendant or the search warrant written to convict an HSBC executive was a little bit vaguely worded. You can find those. And so they'll often defend it on those grounds. You know, it would be really unfair to imprison this HSBC guy with a bad search warrant mm -hmm. because that sets a precedent for the rest of the system, et cetera. And on their face, those arguments are good. But then if you zoom out to the level of, you know, one person went to jail for the financial crisis, yeah. guys, like outcomes, yeah. like we're not looking at the sort of outcomes and the general tenor of what the legal system has become, that it's essentially become what researchers call the sporting theory of justice, where mm. it's just a competition between two people, both lawyers, who can use the rules the best. Wow. And oftentimes judges are these referees in the middle who are like, well, Bob, you use the rules the best, so your person who may have covered up systematic sex abuse is just gonna go free. Sorry, everybody, that's the way the cookie crumbles. And there's never been an attempt by Congress to go back and back and fix these laws by people within the legal community to say like, hey, sorry, wait a minute. We need to think about our entire culture here mm. that maybe we can let some of these go. <laughs> like maybe we can strengthen these things yeah. and maybe we can look at the, the, the extremely capricious way that the criminal justice system goes after much lower level offenders who don't get this benefit of the doubt Absolutely. who nobody ever says like oh let's hear this guy out yeah if it's some you know low-level gang member who's serving 25 years for being in the same vicinity of a shooting and didn't even know about it yeah. i mean we just don't have the same standards yeah. for much of the piece i was assuming you were going to conclude by calling for tougher consequences um or this kind of idea of if we could just put away a couple of people in some harsh way that that would actually solve this problem um, 
But actually, at the end of the piece, you kind of turn in a way that I didn't fully anticipate when I was starting the piece. Yeah, it turns out rich people are really good. We yeah. just let them get away with it. That's where I, that's where I finished the piece, as I recall. It was a shocker. <laughs> um, but you did. You kind of pivoted away that that kind of thinking actually won't help the real problem that we're trying to get at. That it's um, – I don't. I would like you to – I'd like you for, to unpack a little bit because I was I was surprised at where you ended up, and I was actually ple- in some ways I I was surprised by it because I thought we were heading towards a more obvious conclusion, but it's a slight pivot, and it's actually a more um, rich and nuanced argument that you're making that I think is really important for people to understand. Well, my starting point was that one of the f- most consistent findings in criminology is that the severity of the punishment matters a lot less than the likelihood of the punishment. So if you're a bank robber and you know that 99 times out of 100 you get away with it, it doesn't actually matter if the punishment is one year or 10 years or the death penalty because if you're not going to get caught, it's a moot point anyway. Mm. Whereas there's been all these studies about how you know, if you catch people very quickly and you give them like a night in jail, like not something that completely disrupts and destroys their life, but just it's like every single time you get caught, you spend one night in jail, you go home, you're free, that's fine. That affects their likelihood of lawbreaking far more than this thing where we're jacking up mandatory minimums, which nobody even knows about until they get on trial anyway. Yeah. And so for the corporate sector, for elites, we basically have total impunity, nothing, nothing, nothing. 50 years, right? That if you look at the sentences, you can do 25 years for securities fraud. You can pay a $25 million fine. I mean, it's the the sentences that we have for these crimes are plenty long. They're they're plenty harsh. We don't need to make them longer. We don't need to jack up the fines. Like the, the things that would make us feel good, like put them away for life. If we're only prosecuting five or six of these guys every year and there's, you know, a million of them throughout the economy... Like yeah. the top 1% of income earners are 3 million people, yeah. right? Yeah. So if your chances are like lottery winner low of ever getting busted for one of these things, it doesn't really matter what the punishments are. Yeah. And so what researchers talk about is this thing called the ladder of accountability, where you need to catch people when they do small stuff. Like, hey, we're watching you. We see you. And we're not necessarily going to throw everybody in jail, but we see exactly what you're doing. We see something is in danger of escalating here. And if there is an escalation, it's like, okay, somebody's going to go to jail for three months, six months, something, or we just take a ton of your money, right? Like one of the nice (laughs) things about this is that rich people have a lot of money. And so if you find them, you know, $50 million, a lot of these people can absorb it and that money can go to actual good things, but that hurts them in a way that sort of going on trial and beating the charge doesn't. And so there's all of these lower level things that we can do up to Obviously, for the most egregious offenders and most egregious companies, yes, put them in jail for 25 years. I'm completely fine with that. But we need to have, like, that can be a rare thing. Like, that can be as rare as it is now. But then we need to have this entire iceberg of other consequences and other surveillance on these companies underneath it. Yeah. So would it feel good to put a bunch of bankers in jail? Like, sure, great. But... I don't think that that's going to solve the problem. It's not going to prevent the next crash. The way you prevent the next crash is building all these systems to find it before it becomes a crash. Yeah. Oh, that's great. So, Michael, do you have anything that you want to say that we might not have hit? I think the last point to hit is that we we seem to have these high-profile prosecutions of companies and you know martin shkreli and the guy that organized the fire festival and Mm -hmm. martha stewart and i think it's just really worth 
noting that the reason why the agencies do those, and they do them very deliberately, is so that they can get the biggest bang for their buck. So when somebody like, you know, Little Kim or Wesley Snipes or somebody goes to jail for tax evasion, it makes us think like, well, you know, if they're catching Wesley Snipes, there must be like thousands of other rich yeah. people that they're getting every year. Not really. <laughs> this, hmm. is, this is a tactic that they use, and I think very understandably, to make themselves seem like they have more capacity to do this kind of thing that they, than they do, and that these are routine. Like, it's happening all the time. Millionaires going to jail for tax evasion. It's not that big of a deal. But what they're actually doing is prioritizing the fire Festival dudes and Martha Stewart's of the world. Because they're so high profile, they know that people pay attention when it happens. Yeah. Is that and then when you say, oh, you know, prosecutions are way down, they're like, well, what about Wesley Snipes? He just went to jail. Like, I heard about that. I read about it in the yeah. newspaper. And so it's a pretty smart strategy on their part. But I think it's just whenever you see one of those high-profile cases, we need to ask ourselves how many other cases. Is that the rule or is that the exception? And what it has increasingly become is the exception. It's a, it's a PR play much more than it's an actual quest for justice. Hmm. So we have one question that we often ask our guests. And... Why do you do this work? The work oh, you God. do. I think the honest answer is that I like finding out how things work. Yeah. And when you look at a big problem like elite impunity, this is the way that it works. And I kind of wish that it was more sexy and there was like a big case or like some cat and mouse stuff. But it's really just boring. Like we need to fund our public agencies and we need to let people that are experts in this, like people, low-level people in the SEC, low-level prosecutors, people that actually care about this stuff, we need to trust them and just give them like how much does the sec think that it needs to actually fulfill its mandate like let's ask those people and if, if it means quadrupling their budget and hiring ten thousand more inspectors then like yeah let's trust people that know what they're doing about this we've had this top-down helicoptery approach and i just think we just need to ask the people that care about this stuff and know more about it than we do and see what they need yeah. and so that tends to be my answer to every problem that I look into <laughs> as a journalist. But it uh, it happens to be extremely relevant in this case. Great. Well, thank you so much for coming in. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and Nick Hanauer. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunk Works and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. As always, from our team at Civic Ventures, thanks for listening. See you next week.